In 2014, 20-somethings John Cortinas and Gregory Balmer were earning six-figure incomes and pursuing their MBAs at Harvard Business School. Both Christ followers, they met in a men's Bible study on campus. While they took courses on making and managing money, they were also studying the Bible and what it had to say about money. And the Bible revolutionized their thinking and their lives. Eventually, they would team up to write a book about what they learned both from Harvard and the Bible. Their book is called God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. To talk about their book and what they learned, we are pleased to introduce John Cortinas and Gregory Balmer. Now, one other word of introduction, most often the only time we use an interview format is when we've got a WOW guest, and that's going to happen next weekend. Uh, so we bring in a celebrity who's got a faith story to tell we think people would be interested in, and I interview that person. Uh, but on the other weeks of the year, you can pretty much depend on the fact that Clayton or I will be standing at a podium with, a, with an open Bible, and we're doing Bible study together. Now, this doesn't look like Bible study, but it is. In fact, I would encourage you right now to get out your program and turn to the place where you usually take sermon notes uh, because we have deliberately made this to be a Bible-intensive sort of interview. So you're going to hear a lot of scriptures mentioned in passing. This is a really important topic. We want to make sure that we're not just getting John and Greg's opinions on this. We want to hear from God. So, so uh, again, it's, it's going to be Bible-intensive, and you'll want to take notes as we go. You guys, it's a joy to have you with us. And uh, I understand that, uh, that you actually had a life before you pursued MBAs <laughs> at, at Harvard. So tell us about what you were doing, what your career path was, and how you got, how you got headed to Harvard for an MBA. Sure. So uh, I'm Greg. Uh, I'm married and have two kids, but I began my career actually here in Chicago, uh, working for a consulting firm, so go Cubbies. Whoa. Oh, oh yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Got to. You know that's get, getting right to our hearts. Get, right get in the with get. the crowd early, right? Yes, that's what they yeah. teach. So, um, so, yeah, I was here for three years working for a consulting firm, and then my wife and I moved to Boston where I worked for an investment firm for a couple of years before uh, I decided to pursue my MBA at Harvard Business School. Okay. How about you, John? Yeah, and so I'm John, and it's such an honor to be with everybody this morning. I'm married to Megan, and we have two kids, ages two and almost four. And uh, I studied engineering, so different path than Greg at Texas A&M, and then spent a little time in Saudi Arabia studying earth science, and then I joined Chevron. And so for Megan and I, it was all about saving, and uh, we saved about half of our income early in our career. And if she were here, she would say it's because uh, I didn't let her buy anything when we were newlyweds. <laughs> this this so, is live streamed. Did it you is, know that? I think okay. she's watching in Orlando, so sorry, <laughs> yeah. Megan. Um, but we, she's frugal too, and we really had this vision that if we could save up money, we could retire early someday. And actually my password, my banking password was retire at symbol 40. And so that was my vision. <laughs> and we had, a, we had a real plan to get there. And so for us, the MBA, um, me earning that MBA would allow us to go overseas and increase our earnings substantially so that we could um, get to that retire at 40 destination. Wow. Wow, wow, big dreams, you guys. So you didn't know each other prior to coming to Harvard. You end up at the business school together, and because you were both Christ followers, you, uh, you joined a Bible study. Now, at this Bible study where you became friends, uh, you, you know, you were, making a, you were making a study of what Scripture teaches about money. Uh, but, but tell me, first of all, 
where were you at in your spiritual life at that time? Okay, was, uh, were you nominal Christ followers? Were you gung-ho Christ followers? I, I'm assuming because you're in a Bible study, there's some interest in spiritual things. Yeah, so some might be surprised to know that there is a Bible study at Harvard Business School. <laughs> <laughs> I would count myself in that bucket. But there is a Christian fellowship at HBS. I call it Small But Mighty. Um, and John and I met in this Bible study. Where I was in my faith walk at that time, I was in this men's Bible study. My wife and I were in a married couple's Bible study at our church, which I know is a big thing here at Christ Community, which I love. Uh, so we were walking closely with the Lord in that time, I would say, except for one big black spot, which was our finances. And we, my wife and I, had just never connected our faith to our finances, which looking back on it makes no sense given that my entire profession was both based on doing financial stuff. And I just never connected yes, it to yes, my faith, yeah, you know? Yeah. Write my tithe and didn't think one more second yeah. about it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? We can so compartmentalize our lives. So we're following God in like 80% of our lives, but there's this area over here, and it, it could be money, it could be sexual ethics, it could be what we do for entertainment, it could be any number of things. We know, you know, it's not where it should be, but we kind of close the closet door on it. John, how about you? Where were you at in, in terms of following Christ? Well, I was, um, I was following Christ, and I was so thankful for my parents that were committed to the Lord, committed to raising me to know Him. And so from an early age, I, I was in that environment, and I would say that I had a, a very passionate faith walk. And so I really wanted to follow the Lord and His leading in my life. But what actually happened, maybe similar to Greg's journey a little bit, I thought that I was generous. I gave, uh, you know, Megan and I gave 8 or 10% of our income away we thought that was the gold standard. And then we thought maybe someday when we make a lot of money, we'll give a little bit more than that away. And we just kind of thought we had it solved. And so um, what we learned, as, as we'll talk about more, is, is that there's so much more in Scripture on this topic. And yeah. so I think even though I was committed to Christ, I just didn't have a picture. I had never seen what it could look like to be biblically submitted to his word on, in finances. Okay, so let's get to that. You, you get in this Bible study, you study a variety of topics, but one of them is money. How big a deal is money in Scripture? Like just a passing reference, what? So there are over, this shocked us, over 2,000 verses on money in Scripture. And so it's, it's Genesis to Revelation. It's packed full. And about 40% of Jesus' parables are about money. And so wow. it's actually, it's very striking to see how steady the emphasis is. And I think it's because God knew that this is really the closest thing to our heart. And actually, it's the primary competitor that, uh, that God sees to our loyalty to him. You know, yeah. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. And he could have said, you know, you can't serve God and your sensual passions, or you can't serve God and Satan. But he said, you can't serve God and money. And so there's really something fundamental about this as a foundational step in our yeah. journey of faith. So, so it's at the core of a person's following Christ, their attitude toward, toward money. I love what Pastor Clayton said about this last weekend. Uh, you know, we'll periodically teach on this subject because, again, it can't be avoided. 2,000 verses in Scripture, 40% of Jesus' parables. And, and Clayton said last weekend, he said, if you think we talk about money uh, too much, just be glad Jesus isn't your pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's so true. It was, it was at the heart of Jesus' teaching for a good reason because it's a, it's a, a topic of loyalty, our loyalty to God, where we're at in terms of our spiritual journey. So one of the biblical principles that you find in Scripture has to do with tithing. So tithing means giving 10% right off the top of your paycheck back to the Lord. Now, you bring out in your book, your book, God and Money, and it's a really high recommend, great read. You, you say in your book that 
uh, pastors and Bible scholars are kind of divided 50-50 uh, on this approach. Some believe that tithing is an Old Testament principle. Some believe that it's still for Christ followers today. And we would teach the latter here at Christ Community Church, that this is a biblical principle still for us today. You come down on the side of it being an Old Testament principle. But does that mean, like, are you guys anti-tithers? What, what's the deal? Yeah. Please hear us that we are not anti-tithers. We do ultimately come down on the side that strict 10% tithing is an Old Testament principle. But that's only because the New Testament calls us to much greater levels of generosity. And I think that's the part of the message that we need to focus mm -hmm. on. If you read what the New Testament has to say about many spiritual areas, including generosity, uh, you know, the author Randy Alcorn likes to say, Jesus did not come to lower the bar. He came to raise the yeah. bar. Look at what Jesus had to say about murder, about adultery, and about keeping promises in Matthew 5. Uh, he says, if you even consider harming another person, you've murdered him in my eyes, right? And we would attribute that same lesson to the topic of generosity, um, where we are called to think of all of our financial wealth as belonging to the Lord. Uh, and so, you know, we think the tithe is a very useful construct it's, uh, it's good for teaching children about giving. It's a good way to think about adopting a first fruits mentality that we read about in the Old Testament that I think is a really valuable way to submit our wealth to the Lord. So we think the tithe is a great tool, but we aspire for levels of generosity far exceeding the Old Testament tithe. Yes, yeah. I just, I love the way you put it, and I, I, I want to reemphasize it here, that it's, it's baseline. It's like a starting, starting line, not a finish line. And, you know, around Christ's community, when we do bring up the topic of money, and then small groups gather during the week, we got like 300 and some community groups. Often I'll hear back from community group leaders, oh, that was a bit contentious, you know, it kind of rubbed uh, one or two people wrong in our group. And, and one of the pushbacks you'll hear is, well, it's only for Old Testament believers. And I, I love to say, hey, but wait a second, every scholar I know who says, yeah, it's an Old Testament principle goes on to say, and that's because in the New Testament, we're called to something even higher, even more generous. I mean, if, if you were called to give 10% before God gave us his son, how much more, having experienced Jesus going to the cross on our behalf, God's outpouring of grace, should we be generous people? Amen. So, yeah. That's right. And if you look at those over 2,000 verses on money in the Bible, if you took out every single verse related to tithing, you'd still have you know 1,900 to work with. And yeah. all of those point to our... It's about our walk with Christ. It's about when, when we're generous, it's an opportunity to be in close fellowship with him and come to understand his grace a little bit deeper. Yes, yes. He has been tremendously gracious to us. But by the way, if, yeah, you can applaud about stuff having to do with money <laughs> if you want. Um, if you want to know more what Christ Community teaches in this regard, uh, there are about eight to 10 topics out there that we know can be contentious among Christ followers. And so any subject like that where there's debate, we, we try to put together a position paper, a white paper on what we teach from Scripture. So tithing or giving is one of those areas. So if you ever want to take a look at it, uh, you could pick up that paper at the information counter at any one of our campuses, and it will lay out the, you know, the biblical position uh, that, that we take here as a church with regard to stewardship. So again, though, it's a response, it's a response to God's grace toward us. Now, you guys, the basic premise of your book, when we talk about giving, generosity, is uh, we should stop asking ourselves, how much should we give? There's a better question you said we ought to be asking ourselves. I love it. What's the question that we should be asking ourselves, and uh, what's behind the question? 
So we, when we were, we were doing some research that ended up part of a term paper that became this book, and we were out there interviewing and surveying very generous Christian business leaders. And so as we did that, we found examples of people who are living in surprising ways, very, very generous people, and yet um, they seem to have a sense of freedom in their lives, not worried about money, a sense of purpose, a sense of joy. And they were asking a different question, and I'd say that question was, how much do we need to keep? And so it was totally flipped on its head. And so here we are saying, you know, okay, maybe I'll get beyond a 10%, so I'll give 11 or 12. How much do I need to give so I can spend the rest or save the rest, right? Yeah. And these people were asking, you know, God, everything I have comes from you. I know 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I've been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I belong to God. And as a response to his grace, I want to give. And so that, it was incredible to see people living that way. One example to make it concrete, yeah. there's yeah. actually a, a young woman who lives here in Chicago. She's a second year MBA student at Kellogg. And she, along with her fiance, who's a tech professional in the Bay Area in San Francisco, they have decided that they will live in San Francisco, two high earning professionals, without spending and saving more than $130,000 per year. And so anything they receive, their salaries will be much more than that. Any bonuses they get, any equity payouts, all of that is to invest in God's kingdom. So they've set, you could call it a lifestyle finish line and said, whatever upside God brings, that's so we can yes. walk, you know, give generously and invest in, in so what he's So they capped doing. off the other areas. Instead of asking how much kind of do I have to give, it's like, hey, how, how little can I get by on so that I could be as generous as possible? That is a really cool, cool principle. Any other Bible texts behind that that lead to that sort of approach? Yeah, so what we did, we launched a longitudinal study of Scripture going from Genesis to Revelation to read all 2,000 of these verses so that we can start to wrap our head around everything that God has to say about yes. money. The problem is that 2,000 verses was way too much for us to take in. So we needed some way to distill it down into what we call core principles, kind of the executive summary of God's key teaching on money. So I'll walk through a few of those. The first is that everything we have truly belongs to God. And I think most Christians would intellectually agree with that point, but few of us actually live that way. And I would put myself in that same bucket before God opened our eyes through this project. The biblical basis for that idea comes from 1 Corinthians 29, verses 11 through 14, where King David and the Israelites have just made a big gift um, to rebuild the temple. And um, what, we, uh, what David says in that passage, he's praising the Lord, and he says, uh, God, everything in heaven and earth is yours, O Lord. All glory and might and power come from you. Uh, and what we learn from that passage is that everything we have truly belongs to God. Now, the second principle then follows from the first, which is that if everything truly belongs to God, it ought to be used for his purposes. Now, that includes providing amply for your family. We read in 1 Timothy 6, we are called to provide uh, for our families. In fact, Paul uses language so strong as to say to not do so is worse than an unbeliever, quote. And, uh, and so, you know, yes, we provide amply for our family, but we acknowledge that, that those resources are the Lord's. Uh, so we're managing God's resources. That's right. Yes. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Ma managing God's money. And then the, uh, a third principle that I'll highlight is uh, that we are morally bound to support the poor in this fallen and broken world. And scripture is full of passages about our yes. call to support yeah. the poor. Just to pick one, uh, Isaiah 58, uh, Isaiah says that um, when we choose to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and provide shelter for the homeless, 
the glory of the Lord is our rear guard, which I just love that language yeah. because I interpret it as the Holy Spirit imbues us with power when we choose to serve the poor. Yeah. God's, our rear, God's got our back when we're doing what we're supposed to do with his resources. That's right. Yeah. And if you're taking notes, again, jot down these references because we won't turn in a Bible and read each one out loud. But, but Greg just mentioned several scriptures, really important scriptures. Isaiah 58, that one about concern for the poor. And, and the whole notion of God owning it all. I mean, if there is a downside to the tithe principle, it could lead us to believe that if we give 10%, the other 90% is mine now. Right. So I get to do with it whatever I want. Wrong. You know, 100% belongs to the Lord. My tithe says I recognize that. Yep. But 100% is, is God's. That's right. So, guys, as we talk about generosity, uh, it's got to come from the heart. There's got to be a motivation uh, that prompts us to do this. So uh, I would suspect, as with every other act of obedience, there are some bad motivations, you know, some not-so-helpful motivations, and some good motivations. So what? let's start on the negative side. What, what's a really not-so-good motivation for becoming a more generous giver? I think the worst motivation and also the most unbiblical motivation would be one of guilt. You know, we read in Romans that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you may be listening to this conversation thinking, well, man, I... I just don't have very much money to be generous, or I've been living my life ungenerously, and so I, you know, I'm feeling shame about that. And I would just say, absolutely not. If you're in Christ, you're redeemed and forgiven, and there's a call to start anew. And I think that's the proper motivation, actually, is to flip guilt on its head and say it's all about grace. And so we've been made perfect before God in Christ, and so there's a call to walk that out in generosity in response to that. You know, Paul actually says in Acts chapter 20 in his final goodbye, that he's offering to the church. He says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And then he pivots and he says, we must remember to help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so it sounds like he kind of just changed the subject, but to Paul, it was one and the same. God's grace, remember to help the weak, and yes. it's blessed to give. Pastor Tim Keller, who I admire, loves to say that uh, it's... Um, if you truly understand the gospel of grace, you'll live a promiscuously generous life. I love his language there. <laughs> promiscuously generous. I love that too. That's One example of that actually that I'd like to share, a friend of ours who's from Chicago went to Wheaton College. He and his wife moved to New York City after college to launch a career uh, in finance. And for his first year uh, in New York City, he elected to live uh, under a reverse tithe. So he was giving 90% away and only living on 10 in New York City, which is crazy. Um, so he was living in a, this was before he got married, he was living in an apartment with six other guys. They were like all sharing a few rooms. He would get free haircuts on Craigslist from people trying to like become professional hairdressers because he couldn't afford yeah. haircuts. That's, that's what happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys can relate. So, um, and... Uh, so, you know, it sounds crazy, right? But to hear him tell the story, yes. it was the best year of his life. The yeah. blessings that God poured out on him because of his faithfulness in that regard, the opportunities that he had yes. to serve the kingdom, relationships that he was able to form uh, were unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. John, I just want to underscore what you said a moment ago. There are, there, there are two basic motivations, guilt or grace. And this has not only to do with obedience in the area of stewardship, any area of the Christian life. Anytime we're motivated by guilt, okay, it just, it doesn't carry the day. It doesn't get us too far down the field, does it? Uh, in fact, you, you, I heard you say something in one of the previous interviews about um, the fact that there's no joy in that kind of giving. 
Uh, you That's know, right. the people who give kind of begrudgingly, they don't, they don't, they don't you know, get to spike the ball in the end zone, do they? That's right. There's something actually called the Science of Generosity Initiative out of Notre Dame. And so they've looked at the generosity of American families from a sociological perspective, and they've done rigorous academic work on this. And they actually, you know, you could use, call it guilt and grace, which is Christian language. They actually talk about scarcity and abundance. And to give out of scarcity is closed-handed. You know, my neighbor asked me for 50 bucks because they're doing this charity drive. I guess I'll chip it in. Uh, you know, I don't want to give to my church, but my kids are in childcare, so I better pay the amount that I'd pay a babysitter. Like, you know, you're kind of just throwing it out there because you feel guilty versus the mindset of abundance, which says, you know, I'm a child of God. I'm the kind of person who gives. I'm going to give, and I love to be able to contribute yes. to something greater than myself. And when we do that, we actually get an endorphin rush. It's, the science is incredible. It's almost like a runner's high when you're generous. And so, God knew that he made us that way, and he built our bodies to respond positively to wow. it. Wow. Well, go for the endorphin rush, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I really. interpret that to mean that uh, if I'm generous, I don't have to exercise. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I'm not sure that's where John was going. <laughs> okay. All right. But it is, it's so good to do something out of, I've been so blessed. And then you, then you do it out of the grace. You do it out of the the abundance mentality. And you don't have to have a lot of money to have an abundance mentality, do you? I, you Absolutely. Know you know, and this, the study they did was totally based on, you know, typical American families. And so some having more resources, some very much struggling, but that was not the correlated factor. It was all about the mindset. So, which Jesus talks about too. We have the widow's might. You know, Jesus looks at the Pharisees throwing in their money bags and, and being proud in their generosity, trying to show off what they were giving and, and the humble widow with two pennies. And, and Jesus ca calls that out as the kind of giving that and he that's is all she had. By. That's and all she yes, had. Yeah, wow. Well, you guys talk about three categories of givers or people who interact with their money. Um, there are spenders and there are savers. And then there's a third category you call servants. I love this. So tell us what you mean by each of those categories. And if you'd be willing to be vulnerable with us, Tell us which of the categories you normally fall into, okay? Sure. So during our research, we were surveying hundreds of families on their wealth and giving habits. And what we observed is that most families fall into one of those three buckets when it comes to their mindset toward money. So I am a spender by nature. And what that means is, you know, let's say that on Monday, you know, tomorrow you show up at work and your boss hands you a $500 bonus check. What is the first thing you're thinking about doing with that money? For me, it's I'm going to the mall or I'm... But booking that vacation, right? I'm thinking about obtaining more material stuff for myself, and that's, okay. that's a spender mindset. And I'm actually the saver right here, and so the saver mindset would take the $500 and go, this is awesome, I'm going to get ahead on my mortgage, and I'll just write a check immediately to the, or put it in the savings account for my kid's college or something like that. Basically, the, the saver mindset lives right there where everything, every incremental dollar, I can sock it away, and I think that's um, commendable often in our culture. Our culture celebrates the saver mindset. Maybe, you know, those of us who are savers make fun of those who are spenders. We see the luxury car drive by and we're like, I know he doesn't have that paid off. Or, you know, we kind of cast judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And so we, we sit high and mighty in our um, wealth accumulation chairs. Remember, retire at 40. That was my, my thing. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I'm thinking he's a miser, right? I'm like, come on, man, live a little. Like, he's saving half his income. I'm like, you ever taking your wife out to dinner? <laughs> come on. And so <clears throat> there's lots of judgment being cast both ways. But what we began to realize is that we were each missing the point, right? So, you know, as a spender, I'm prone to materialism, placing greater value in created goods than in my creator. And, and, you know, every spender has different issues. Mine is not actually stuff, it's experiences. You know, my wife and I would blow money on expensive dinners or unnecessary trips. Uh, so that, that was kind of our thing. Whereas for John, as a saver, he's prone to idolatry, right? Placing greater value, uh, finding, I would say, his, his safety and security in his net worth rather than in Christ. And so what we you know, observed was we're each missing the point here. How can we each attempt to become servants with respect right. to our money? Yeah, I'm not going to let him get away with that, Shannon. I mean, you just said you're guilty of idolatry. In your, <laughs> yeah. so, so defend yourself or explain what he means. <laughs> what is, what, what, why is a per, as you said, it's a commendable thing. You're saving money. How is that idolatry? Yeah, well, this is where God had to do such a serious work on my heart in this area because I thought I had finance nailed. You know, I, I'm pretty generous. I give 10 or 12% away, whatever it is. Um, you know, Job actually talks about if I have made fine gold my security or if I have kissed my lips to the moon or the stars, I think is what it says, then I've been false to the Lord my God. And what he's actually saying there is that trusting fine gold or trusting wealth is idol worship. It's the same thing as bowing down before the sun and thinking that the sun is a god. And so, you know, Jesus actually calls this out in Luke chapter 12, parable of the rich fool. Talks about a guy who's a classic American saver. He has barns. He has a great harvest. He wants to build bigger barns. And so he can kick back and relax. And we're kind of like, you know, great job, man. Good, you know, good on you. And but what Jesus actually says is, um, you know, you fool. And uh, the challenge in that story that Jesus issues is not that saving money is always a foolish thing to do, but this guy did not have a generous heart toward God. Yes, yes, and that's what yes, Jesus calls out. And yes. that's what I would say was true of me. I yes. would give begrudgingly and save enthusiastically, and I had it backwards. Yeah, and, and, and if, that save, if knowing that you've got money in your bank account is where you're getting your security from, I guess that is an idol because that's something only God's supposed to provide, right? God's supposed to be the one we look to to provide that security and, and whatnot. Now, get to the third category. So you've, you've talked about spenders and savers. Talk about a, a servant. And as you do so, also speak to the spender and saver. What would you say to that person? So, you know, what's, what's the biblical response to those other two categories? And what is the, the biblical role of a servant with regard to stewardship? Sure. So a servant thinks about any incremental money that they receive as an opportunity to serve the kingdom. And we observed this in a minority of the families that we interviewed for our book. And what, what we realized these families had figured out was that when it comes to generosity, God wants something for us, not from us. What I mean by that is our God is a sovereign God. He's not waiting idly by while, for us to open our wallet so that he can accomplish like he his needs purposes. It, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to accomplish his purposes no matter what we do. So generosity is better thought of as an opportunity to step alongside Christ in the fulfillment of his kingdom here on earth. That's an opportunity he gives us. Yes. And it brings us great joy when we do that. And so... Yes. Speaking to the spenders, that's what I was missing. I was chasing joy in stuff and in experiences. Yes. And it wasn't until I understood that actually generosity will allow me to achieve this lasting joy that I've been seeking wrongly in other places. It wasn't until I figured that out that it clicked. Wow. Well, I, I want to repeat a line he said because I've heard him say it twice now. 
God doesn't want something from us so much as he wants something for us. And that, that is the key to understanding giving. If you think, even a church, church is just after, you know, got one hand in your pocket. That's what this is all about. You miss it entirely. It's not what God wants from you. He can get his job done with or without you. It's what he wants for you. What you will miss out on if you refuse to be generous and be a, a steward, a biblical steward, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. So, so John, what do, what do you say to a saver? You know, I think um, the biggest issue for me and what I realized as God took me on this journey is that I put a lot of my personal identity and self-worth into my net worth. And so I was very proud of my rapidly rising. You know, I had $100,000 saved up by the time I finished uh, grad school. And we were, um, you know, we were just on this, you know, millionaire by age 30, retire by age 40 path. But that actually gave me a sense of identity. And so to, to leave that path meant I was losing what I thought of myself as a man, as a provider, as, as an employee, as a professional. And so I think it's been a journey for me to come to understand my value, my worth is in Christ and in Christ alone. Yes. And I need to not optimize my life to increase my net worth, but optimize my life to serve God's kingdom. Yeah. And that may or may not have any kind of effect on my net worth, but that's secondary to Christ and what he wants to do in me. Okay, so spender, saver, servant, what are the biblical principles behind this? So I think when you think about how to become a servant, there's three uh, big steps you should take with respect to uh, aligning your, your giving. So one is gospel-focused. So I, I personally believe that our giving should be very gospel-focused. That doesn't mean that you can't give to your university or, you know, Girl Scout cookies or whatever, but um, the highest calling for our giving is a gospel focus. So something related to getting the message of Jesus. Out yes, there. that's okay. right. And okay. then we'll go in a few minutes. I think we'll go even deeper on what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we, uh, the second big principle for those who are trying to become servants is to align your giving with your personal ministry calling. And what we mean by that is take a look at Romans 12 where Paul outlines different spiritual gifts that God has given to all of us, one of which is generosity, by the way. Many people forget that generosity actually is one of the spiritual gifts listed in that section. But to the extent that we can align our giving with our other spiritual gifts, uh, that's, that causes two benefits. One is it amplifies the effectiveness of our giving because we're giving in a way that we're already spiritually gifted. And two, it amplifies the joy that we get from it because we're applying our financial resources to an area of the ministry that we really care about. Yeah. Uh, and then the third and final principle for those who are trying to become uh, servants with respect to their wealth is to make sure that your giving is effective. So, you know, we're all called to be wise stewards. Steward does not mean you cut a check and forget about it, right? We think about stewardship as instead the wise and responsible management of God's resources for God's purposes, which means that there is a responsibility on our part to ensure that those resources are used effectively. Wow, wow, wow. That's a mouthful. That's a lot to, lot to consider. Let, let me step back from this for a moment. So, you know, we've gone down the field describing what a servant giver looks like. But I want to know, give us a snapshot of our culture right now. How generous are we? So this will give us sort of, a, you know, a baseline. How generous are Americans in general? Uh, how generous, you guys are two young bucks, two millennials. How generous are millennial, m millennial people? And, and how about Christians? How about people who go to church? How generous are we? You've done the studies. What do the statistics show? Well, the news starts out depressing and then gets a little better. But so starting <laughs> with the depressing part, uh, our culture gives about 2 to 3% per year. 
And then if you look at those who check the Christian box on the census form, it's about 2 to 3% per year. No, no better so, than the general no public. No better. <laughs> but, if you, but if you sort that by those who show up at church at least once a month and make some profession of faith, it's actually 5 to 8% of income per year. A little so, better, but... <laughs> so when you see a little commitment, you see some more generosity. And, and in our research, we found you know, devoted Christian business leaders who are passionate about Christ giving far beyond yes. 10%. So we found this correlation... Um, yeah. That, you know, as we walk more closely with Christ, he actually calls us into generosity. Wow. I read an article in the uh, Atlantic magazine. It's like the last month or maybe, maybe two months ago. And it was an article on generosity. And they were noting that generosity has tanked. And the reason this caught their attention was we know that back in 2009, the economy headed into the weeds. And so, you know, you might expect people to pull back on generosity. And that's what happened. But there's been a recovery, and there's been growing affluence. And the, the interesting thing is noted by this secular magazine is that giving has not kept pace with that. In fact, it's gone further south. So back in 2000, 61% of Americans were giving something. And I'm not even talking about a 10%. I'm not talking about 2%. Just giving anything, 61%. Now, here we are, uh, you know, 16, 17 years later, and it's dropped by five points. There are only 56% of Americans giving anything at all to charity of any sort. So, I mean, that's, that's the snapshot. Which is our loss, right? I mean, we're foregoing joy because right, of it's, it. Yeah, it's not so much uh, shame on that half that doesn't give. It's almost like, man, what, what they're missing out on if they only knew. Yes, absolutely. Let me, let me get real practical with you. Um, one of the areas that pops up all the time, the minute you start talking about managing your money so you could become a more generous giver, there's this thing called a mortgage that hangs over a lot of our heads. That seems to be the biggest chunk of where our money goes. I've got one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so speak to it. Speak to, you know, how do you determine, I mean, just give us some practical advice. Like you're a financial advisor. How much do you spend on a mortgage percentage of your income? Um, we hear people say, hey, get out from under that mortgage ASAP, so double up your, you know, your contributions or try to get out of it in the next five, six years, pay it all off. What do you think about all this? Yeah, t talk to us about mortgage. So we each recently bought homes, and so we're right in the middle of that and um, owned them for a year or two each now. But uh, one of my mentors has said, why be happy when you can be a homeowner? So we've experienced some of that. Like, the garage door <laughs> is broken again? Seriously? Um, so that stuff happens. But I would say one, one big piece to remember is if you go to an online mortgage calculator, how much house can I afford? Or you walk into the bank, what kind of a loan can I get? They're going to assume that you're not giving anything. And they're also going to assume that you want to leverage up your income as much as you can to buy a house. And so I would just say, you know, chop your income a little bit to account for the fact that you want to be generous as a Christ follower. So... In the book, we recommend that, you know, take 80% of your income and price out on a 15-year mortgage, and that will put you in a better spot to have margin left over in your life to, um, to enjoy not being stressed month to month and also to be generous. Yeah, but both those things are important. The margin not only allows you to be generous, but to live without stress, yeah. too. Greg, That's you right. were going to add something. We, it, most uh, advisors will say you could lever up to four times your income in terms of total house price. And if you follow the formula that John mentioned, it spits out about two and a half times, which we feel a lot better about. Much more conservative. And what about getting out from under this, this debt? I mean, should we be racing to get our mortgage paid off? You know, it's responsible to get out of debt. But I think there's a, there's a, a sense out there that that's like the highest aim with our money. If we can just get out of debt, then we're financially successful. And I would say the goal of our financial lives is to walk in fellowship with Christ. And part of that, again, 
is generosity. So I would say that me and Megan, Greg and Allison, neither one of our families is in a huge rush. Let's crush the mortgage in five or six years. Let's get it done. We'd much rather give now. You know, we don't know how much time we have on earth. We'd rather give, be responsible with our mortgage. Let's pay it. We may pay ahead a little bit, but generosity takes precedence over obsessively getting out from underneath the debt we have. Good word. Now, you guys in your book, you are both big on giving to and through the church. In fact, if you weren't, you wouldn't be sitting here because I wouldn't have invited you to, to be here. So, so, but, you know, for them to hear this from me, it's, you, you sort of write it off as, well, that's what a pastor is supposed to say. The church is really uh, of primary importance. So I want them to hear it from somebody else. Why do you say it's critical that your giving be to the church through the church? Well, the church is the anchor of the gospel in our local communities. And so while there are very attractive causes we can give to and and see an immediate, you know, oh, I I fed somebody overseas. That's fantastic. And my wife and I do some of that. You know, we get Love Compassion and IJM and to call it a couple of ministries among many that we love supporting. But I will also say that without the local church, where's our discipleship? Where's our Christian faith in our local communities? So we in 2017 will give more money than we've ever given to the local church. And we're excited about that. And we've even made a gift toward the salary of a church planter because, again, this, this pastor who we love, we want to we support him, and we're all about that. Yeah. And so yeah. We, can't, we can't neglect that in our generosity. John, you mentioned two ministries, which we're fans of. You know, so Compassion, it's orphaned kids and whatever and paying for their education. And then IJM, International Justice Mission. So we're taking on human trafficking and that kind of stuff. And so really important, but I do find that... Um, to, to many givers, especially younger givers, now maybe this is a caricature, so you, you, could, you could correct me on this, but it seems like there's more of a draw to a sexy cause than there is to put money in an offering bag that goes by in a church service. I mean, is that, is that accurate? Is that one of the things we have to overcome in order to value the, the ministry of the church? I think that's right. I think it's set against the backdrop of social justice, and you know, the millennial generation in particular is very passionate about social justice, which is good, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a positive. But if we index too far over to that side, we forget what the gospel says about our giving. And uh, in the New Testament, particularly, I think of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul describes what giving ought to look like. Yeah. And um, the two major directions that our giving should go very clearly, serve the poor, local church. It's those two. Wow. And so those are the two most important things that we ought to be doing with our giving. We can't convi- uh, forget the local church as part of that. So, um, you know, what John and I, what our families do, uh, giving to our local church is the largest line item in our giving budget. And we do give to other causes, like John said. But if, you, if you're not supporting the local church where you are being fed, where hopefully you are also serving, uh, you know, I think you're missing out on what God's vision for your generosity. I, I love these guys. I love these guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Another chapter of your book. Because this is a really cool principle. I wanted everybody to hear this. Um, you talk about stewardship in community. Because we're huge in, in the community. we got 300 and some community groups where men and women, uh, either men with men, women with women, couples, young people, they're in groups where they're doing life together, applying scripture to their lives. Uh, what does this have to do with stewardship? Yeah, in our research, we found that money is the big taboo in the church today. You know, in small groups, for instance, my wife and I have been part of great small groups throughout our marriage, and we'll talk openly and in detail about intimate aspects of our marriage or, uh, you know, sexual ethics, 
but we never talk about money, which makes no sense given how much of Scripture is devoted to the subject. So uh, we advocate for what we call stewardship and community, which is engaging in generosity with other believers. So a couple examples on how to do that. John's family, my family, and five other families are all giving together into a joint fund that we then use to translate the Bible into a new language for the first time. Wow. Wow, through the, through so the this company. is your small group that, that you, you, at large. That yeah, you so it was our small group at when we all were in grad school, and now we've kind of spread out all over, but we're still together investing, and it's a project that's much larger than any one of the seven families could have done on their own, sure. but now we're doing yeah, it together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one example. Another example is financial transparency. So just like we uh, receive accountability in other areas, we share our finances with each other every year. So we share our spending, saving, and giving goals, and more importantly, the answers to some spiritual questions yeah. about um, our, fellow, our, our stewardship, and we share those with each other every year. And then the last and final piece I'll say is remember that we're called um, to let our light shine before men, and one area that we don't do enough of that is on the subject of generosity. Uh, if you have the gift of discipleship, make sure that includes discipling on the subject of generosity. Yeah, well, just a shout out to community group leaders. Okay, I know accountability is a huge part of groups. I lead a group, a men's group. And so we're talking about a lot of areas of our lives that we want to bring into conformity to God's word. Don't leave out the money piece. Talk about it from time to time. Be accountable to each other. How are we doing in this whole area of giving and generosity and, and just managing our money in a God-honoring way? Now, you guys, we've run out of time. We could, we could spend the next hour or two talking, and I think people would stay because this has been interesting stuff. But give us a, as you go, here are one or two things to get you started in, in moving you in the, in the direction of generosity. Be, because you know, some of our people are already there. Some, you know, haven't left the starting blocks yet. Some make big incomes. Some are barely making ends meet. So give us some simple things that would be applicable across the board. One thing I'd, I'd say right off the bat is that, that our God is a God of compassion and he's full of grace toward you wherever you are. And so again, just want to hammer home, there's no guilt in this message. It's a message of grace and, and receiving that from God and then stepping into partnership with him from, from this day forward. And, uh, Another thing I'd like to call out is, is just, um, I've, it's part of my, my faith journey that God called me out of the corporate world and into a ministry called Generous Giving. And so we offer lots of resources for those who are especially finding themselves in a place of surplus financially. Wow, God has blessed me. I want to live into generosity. And so I'd love to chat with anybody um, when we're over in the Welcome Center. If that describes your situation, we'd love to go a little deeper. And yeah, give us, right. for those at the other campuses who won't make it to the Welcome Center, how can they contact you? John? How about uh, J-O-H-N is my name, John, john at generousgiving.org. I'd love to hear from you. Good. Talk, to gener talk about generosity with your kids. That's the biggest thing I can say. Yeah. At the dinner, engage your children in conversation about generosity. Align some of your generosity to their spiritual gifts and allow them to effectuate the giving. And I think that'll pay lifelong dividends. Yeah. And I want to piggyback on that. If you're married, talk about it with your spouse. Yeah, you know, as a pastor, I often realize that most often on a weekend in a sermon, uh, people individually are applying what they hear from God's Word. You don't have to talk to your spouse about it to, you know, to struggle with it, to what's God saying to me. But when it comes to giving and money management, you got to talk with your. If you're married, you got to talk this through. You're never going to take the next steps in generosity unless you're talking about it together. You guys, this has been tremendous. Thank you for coming. Hasn't it been worthwhile? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much.